was mentioned at the outset and also throughout the first panel, this is again the 20th anniversary of Elena Kagan's landmark <laughs> article on presidential administration. And that's more directly the subject of this next conversation and the, the two pa papers at the heart of it. I'll introduce the speakers um, one at a time in just a moment, but just one observation as I was going back over Kagan's article in preparation for this conversation, I saw a footnote that in hindsight seems a little ironic. Early in the article, she looks back at Richard Stewart's own sort of landmark article from 1975, The Reformation of American Administrative Law. She calls it a seminal article, and she says in her footnote, Stewart's seminal article, criticizing the interest representation model of administration, signaled the decline of that model. Although, ironically, he viewed the model as not yet fully mature. It seems maybe in hindsight, Kagan's article, her own article, is the opposite of that. In presidential administration, she looks at the modern, what she calls the era of presidential administration, as sort of a mature phenomenon. Um, that was true in a sense, but surely uh, it also marked not the, the, the decline of presidential administration, but actually the new chapter in presidential administration. And in describing a phenomenon that she saw as mature helped to usher in a, an entire new era of expansion and debate and growth. Uh, so that's, that's, that's my contribution to the panel, and I'll turn it over. Our first speaker is Catherine Kovacs. She's a professor at Rutgers Law School. By the way, she also was one of the contributors to the aforementioned APA Symposium. She wrote in the, in the symposium on uh, the APA and authoritarianism, and now she's back with a new paper titled From Presidential Administration to Bureaucratic Dictatorship. Katie? Adam, thank you so much for including me again. Um, it is a real pleasure to be here in person. I particularly appreciated the challenge of fitting into a suit again after a year and a half of elastic waistbands. Real moment of personal growth <laughs> for me. Um, this is, of course, the 20th anniversary of Elena Kagan's presidential administration. And as Adam pointed out, the 75th anniversary of the APA. Many of you already know that I'm uh, in my spare time, the self-appointed president of the APA fan club, because to me, the APA marks a truly significant moment in U.S. history, a constitutional moment that ended 17 years of debate about administrative reform. It was a moment when Congress, both liberals and conservatives in Congress, the courts, the president, the American Bar Association and other interested parties reached a consensus, or at least gave up fighting, um, that the administrative state was here to stay, and that delegations of authority to agencies would pass muster so long as the agencies were procedurally constrained and faced judicial oversight. Fifty-five years later, now Justice Kagan asked what she called the perennial question of how to ensure appropriate control of agency discretion. And yet she largely ignored Congress's super statutory answer to that very question. Clearly she knew about the APA and she does discuss it a little bit, but she largely failed to engage it. What are the consequences of that failure to engage this central statute? With 20 years of hindsight, we can now see that this brilliant and influential piece of scholarship 
ended up greasing the skids for the United States' continuing slide towards authoritarianism. Now, number one, democracy in the United States is backsliding, and it is a bipartisan phenomenon. Authoritarianism is an umbrella term that encompasses various forms of government that use a combination of both legitimacy and coercion to retain power. They often look a lot like democracies, but they use the the structures of government, elections, courts, and so on, to retain power. The hallmark, as the first panel brought out, is unilateral decision-making, which is and has been increasing in the United States for some time now. Oftentimes, the president acts, to use a, a term that Kevin Stack coined, as the statutory president, using statutory authority given to the office of the president itself. This is true in many immigration contexts, foreign trade contexts, and certainly in emergencies. Other times, the president acts as what I call the super super secretary in chief, using authority that's not given to the president, but is given by statute to another federal officer. For example, the Immigration and Nationality Act gives enforcement discretion to the Secretary of Homeland Security, but you wouldn't know it based on the actions of our last few presidents. Presidential control has gotten even broader than individual statutes, though. Look at President Trump's two-for-one order and the regulatory budget. Look at President Biden's executive order on advancing equity or his memorandum on scientific integrity and evidence-based policymaking. These are broader efforts to control larger swaths of agency policymaking. And this unilateral presidential decision-making goes largely unchecked. Certainly, Congress is not capable of reining in the president or has proven itself to be incapable or unwilling to rein in the president. The courts, for their part, have held that the president is not an agency under the Administrative Procedure Act. There's actually a circuit split on whether the federal courts can ensure that the president is acting within the scope of the president's statutory authority. Um, No court reviews presidential actions for abuse of discretion. And suing an agency that implements a presidential decision falls short for a number of reasons, but primarily in my mind, because if the agency lacks discretion, then its decision is largely unreviewable. And certainly any time the president is involved, the scope of review is going to be rather generous. So the presidential administration that Kagan celebrated 20 years ago raises the specter of tyranny. And it's a one-way ratchet because no president of either party abdicates control or um, methods of power that its previous, that his predecessor has taken. Kagan recognized this risk. She acknowledged and agreed that Congress has the authority to delegate power to a particular officer um, and, the, and the power to limit the president's ability to control that officer. She could have used unitary executive theory to justify that position, but instead she detoured around the constitutional issues using statutory interpretation. She employed a presumption that any delegation to a federal official allows the president to assert directive authority over that officer. 
In other words, um, presidential administration is legal because Congress hasn't said it isn't. And she also felt that her position was justified by the need for vigorous executive action to overcome partisan gridlock, as the first uh, panel brought out. Had Kagan paid the APA sufficient heed, she may have taken a different route because the APA has both a constitutional and a normative valence that undermines presidential administration. First, its constitutional role. Number one, the APA reflects Congress's proper constitutional role as the primary creator, organizer, and controller of the administrative state. Um, Rosenblum over there has done some fabulous work on the Presidential Reorganization Act of 1939. in which, which is happening at the same time that Congress was debating the APA, um, Congress gave the president only part of the authority he sought to organize the executive branch. And then two months after it passed the APA, Congress passed the Legislative Reorganization Act, which was designed to enhance its control of administrative agencies. Presuming that a delegation to a particular officer can be disregarded flies in the face of that history and the very basic constitutional tenet it reflects. Number two, the APA codified the conditions that legitimized delegations to agencies. And there's been some wonderful academic work on this as well. During the New Deal era, there was a series of Supreme Court cases that provided a template for how to delegate to agencies intelligible principles, procedural safeguards, and judicial supervision. So the APA provides the quid pro quo for the very existence of the administrative state. If the president makes decisions, that control is missing. The legitimacy of delegations is undermined. Number three, um, the APA marks a consensus about what procedures are appropriate before imposing federal agency authority on citizens. The president, presidential administration <coughs> circuits that process by dictating the final outcome. And fourth, the APA, this is the piece I wrote for that um, volume in the back there, which you should all take home. The APA is the mechanism for building a bureaucracy without yielding to authoritarianism. There was a real fear in the 1930s and early 40s that FDR would become the United States' first dictator. And um, that shaped the APA in large part, the publication requirement, separation of functions, procedural constraints, and judicial review were designed to permit extensive government without dictatorship. And then if you think about the APA's normative Um, import. Number one, public participation. The lack of public comment when the president makes a decision means there's no way to ensure accuracy, hone the policy, or provide for basic fairness. Transparency. Public presidential decisions are largely opaque. We usually don't know what the president, what information the president considered in making a decision who he consulted, what process was employed. 
Deliberation. The APA expressly requires agencies to consider facts and arguments. They cannot act arbitrarily or based on raw politics. The president can. Uniformity. Um, the APA applied to all agencies in order to make them more fair and less confusing. Presidential decision-making is ad hoc, informal, obscure, and often inequitable. The APA is, God knows, it's far from perfect. But implementing the APA's constitutional and normative vision would, I think, help to forestall our slide towards authoritarianism. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Our next speaker is Ashraf uh, Ahmed. He is the co-author of a new paper titled The Tragedy of Presidential Administration. Uh, his co-authors, by the way, are here with us today. Lev Mina- or I should say Ashraf is an academic fellow and lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. His co-author, Lev Minad, is an academic fellow and lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. And just to mix things up, Noah Rosenblum is an assistant professor of law at NYU School of Law. And I'll also note that in addition to the paper they've written for this conference, The Tragedy of Presidential Administration, they note in the paper that it's a companion to a second article titled The Crisis of Presidential Administration. Ash? Lovely. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be here. It's, uh, it's delightful to actually get to meet people in an embodied way um, given the past 18 months. So um, I, I'll begin with the standard disclaimer that while I don't claim um, any credit for the strengths of the paper, any infirmities you can direct towards my co-authors, um, no, <laughs> not in the back. Um, so we begin... Um, we began this project by observing that there are two strands to um, then-Professor Kagan's um, presidential administration. One was a normative argument about the bases of that model of governance, um, one that rooted it in um, democracy, the democratic credentials of the presidency as um, representative of a national constituency, and the second that um, the presidency was more energetic. Um, that has been glossed variously as efficiency. What has been less studied um, is the fact that the first half of the piece is, and it's, it's a 141-page piece, um, the first 70 pages is a history of American administrative law. And it's a history of administrative law that ends with the Clinton administration. And that represents, in a certain sense, an end of history for administrative law, where through progressive um, Institutional development, the presidency is now the primary source of direction for the administrative state and all for the better. Um, What we found curious reading this piece is a lack of conflict. Um, And this lack of conflict um, was um, wedded to an embrace of the Reagan administration's um, EO 12291. And Kagan's piece is deeply ironic. Um, She, in fact, takes the debates of the 1990s, one in which some of the participants are here in the room, like Professor Prakash in the back, um, who argued for a strong unitarian executive and executive control over the administrative state in the early 90s. That debate happened against Cass Sunstein and Larry Lessig. And Kagan's intervention was to say, well, actually, we have a shared basis of agreement here. We shouldn't have such strong disagreement. Actually, we can all um, take comfort in the fact that the presidency is now the de facto leader of the administrative state. So we started digging. And 
What we tried to do in this piece is contest what we think is a Whig history of the administrative state in Professor Kagan's um, piece. Um, what we do is we recover what we think is a three-stage um, history that spans roughly from the mid-1970s um, to um, 2021, to the present day. And this let's, um, nearly half-century history um, start, um, shows that at, at the start of presidential administration, in its foundations, there was deep institutional conflict, deep constitutional conflict. Um, EO 12291 caused a scandal when it was first passed. And there was significant congressional pushback because the baseline prior to EO 21291 was the idea that whenever the president wanted to go and expand its powers, it would go to Congress and ask for authorization. Um, this shifted in 12291 with 12291. There, an inchoate argument uh, yet to be developed it would be elaborated in the early 1990s, was made about the scope of the Take Care Clause, Article 2. And what it did was it took, it re recovered dicta from Myers and used that as the basis for an expansive vision of presidential control. Those arguments would be given full elaboration in the late 80s and in particular in the early 90s by a generation of scholars um, with sophisticated originalist arguments, historical arguments about the roots and character of presidential power. But during the 1980s, what the baseline was conflict between Congress and the presidency. And the Supreme Court, in our account, played a role in that, enable giving the institutional conditions that allowed for the presidency to grow in power while limiting Congress's options to intervene. Particular decisions matter here. Chada is absolutely vital, and the demise of the legislative veto. And additionally, um, Bauschafi Zainar. But moreover, we see the roots of a more um, expansive notion of the presidency in dissents by Justice Scalia, um, and in particular Morrison. What we then track in the 1990s is the normalization, consolidation of presidential administration under the Clinton presidency. And there, even though they don't share a, um, the constitutional arguments of um, the originalists, there is a um, consensus and there is a, an embrace of presidential power as a way to get things done. The analogies between that era and the embrace of pen and phone, um, and phone or pen, I forget which order President Obama mentioned them, um, are striking. Democrats faced fractured Congress, Gingrich Revolution, and inability to pass legislation, and they turned to administrative law, and in particular, presidential power over the administrative state as a way to get policy done. We see a similar sort of thing happen in the Obama administration. I'm going to leave more room for um, discussion, but I'll conclude with the last third of the piece is 2001, on our account, is not the culmination of presidential administration, it's an announcement of something that had already been completed. In a certain sense, that was its apex and apogee. Because for the next two decades, those who worked in the, Kag the Kaganite tradition devoted considerable energy to thinking about how do we constrain the presidency? How do we limit its control over the administrative state? Hence, the rise of internal separation powers literature, hence the emphasis on norms, 
Obviously, there were those who decided to go the other direction. We might look to the work of Adrian Vermeule and um, Eric Posner as an expansive vision of the presidency that isn't necessarily rooted in a constitutional register. And the story culminates in the present day, where today we have, as Katie's piece shows and other um, burgeoning scholarship shows as well, uh, a crisis of presidential administration, deep reflection by administrative law scholars who over the last two decades have felt an unease with um, the lack of law constraining the presidency and um, the ways in which presidential um, control over the administrative state can depart from the rule of law and reasoned decision-making. So um, we call it a tragedy. I'll leave it with the rhetorical trope. We call it a tragedy um, in a sort of nod to the Greek tradition in the sense that there's um, unintended consequences here. Kagan tried to embrace and celebrate a development who that was deeply contingent at its um, foundation, highly contested, and in the intervening years, ultimately um, quite tragic. Thanks, Ash. <clears throat> and now we'll have comments from Professor Kristen Hickman. She's the McKnight Presidential Professor-in-Law at the University of Minnesota. She's also with uh, Dick Pierce, who we saw earlier, co-editor of the casebook Federal Administrative Law and also the Administrative Law Treatise. Kristen? Thanks, Adam. Um, and I do want to thank Adam for inviting me to participate in this conference. It really is delightful to get to see people in person again. Um, so Justice Kagan's seminal article on presidential administration has been enormously influential in shaping how we think about the executive branch. Uh, the papers by Katie and Ash and his co-authors um, are strong and thought-provoking responses to the phenomenon about which Kagan wrote and the development since then, and I enjoyed reading them and recommend them to you, although Ash's paper in particular has made me feel my age since I was alive and aware of many of the events that he and his co-authors write about as though they were ancient history. Um, of course, Justice Kagan's famous article on the executive, focused on the executive branch, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, and in that vein, my fellow panelists focus on the executive branch and are critical of how presidents have asserted and accumulated power in recent decades. Um, I don't dismiss their concerns at all. Um, presidents and with them the executive branch more generally have accrued and claimed and exercised more power uh, and we ought to be concerned about the balance of power in the federal government getting out of whack. That said, strong words have been used in describing that trend. Dictatorial, imperial, authoritarian, even tyrannical, just to name a few. Um, I think to their credit, Katie and Ash and his co-authors take great pains to be very even-handed in how they talk about uh, this phenomenon. But it seems to me that words like dictatorial and imperial and authoritarian and tyrannical tend to be used more often when the speaker dislikes the policy outcomes the presidential administration yields. And while I do not dismiss the validity of slippery slope arguments, I do think we are so far away from true authoritarianism and tyranny that to suggest otherwise is not only hyperbolic, but an insult to those who have experienced the real thing. Um, nevertheless, again, my fellow panelists are correct 
to raise concerns about the trend toward greater presidential power. In response, I would suggest that there is a difference between expressing concern about the shift in power and blaming the president for it. Um, the concern shouldn't be, to me, the, about the shift in power to the president attempting to assert control over the executive branch, but rather the shift in power toward the executive branch as a whole. The Constitution envisions three more or less co-equal branches of government. The framers also anticipated that the balance among the three branches would be maintained as participants in those branches jealously guarded their own powers against excessive incursion by participants in the other branches. Nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, If presidents have more power today than they once did, it's not because they've sought to corral the executive branch, but rather that Congress and the courts have walked away from their own authority. I know that there are more contributing factors to this trend than I can address in the few minutes that I have here, but I would like to highlight two. Um, The first was the particularly robust forms of Chevron and our deference to executive branch interpretations of statutes and regulations that the Supreme Court embraced, particularly in the 1990s and the 2000s, respectively. The second is congressional fecklessness. As Congress not only has delegated extensive policymaking to the executive branch, but also has largely walked away from being a serious legislative body in favor of a constituent service role that avoids hard choices and makes it easier for them to get reelected. I will note as a bit of a sidebar that I have written articles on both Chevron deference and the non-delegation doctrine in recent months. So for further elaboration of my thinking on those, see my recent collected works on SSRN. Uh, But let's start by talking about judicial deference doctrine. I think this audience knows these doctrines pretty well. They were even mentioned in the last panel. Chevron tells reviewing courts to defer to reasonable interpretations of ambiguous statutory provisions advanced by administering agencies. Our tells reviewing courts to give controlling weight to agency interpretations of regulations unless those regulations or those interpretations are plainly erroneous. I haven't charted this out empirically, but having read a lot of Chevron and our cases over the years, my general impression is that the 1990s were Chevron's high watermark and the 2000s were ours. Um, the Supreme Court and thus the lower courts in the 1990s both extended Chevron deference to an increasingly expansive array of agency pronouncements and also tended to pass, uh, just pass right by Chevron step one rather quickly and move straight to thinking about deference. Uh, Chevron step one, of course, being where the courts are supposed to use traditional tools of statutory interpretation to try to discern meaning for themselves. I clerked in the late late 1990s for Judge David Sintel on the D.C. Circuit, and I remember that he said on more than one occasion that some judges would find ambiguity in a stop sign. Um, To give credit where it's due, I think he was quoting one of his colleagues. Uh, But meanwhile, studies of the court's application of the hour standards showed deference rates to agency interpretations of agency regulations in the late 90s or even in the early 2000s Um, as high as 90%. That's a lot. Um, 
These days, though, Chevron and our deference come with a lot of caveats. Um, the Mead case in 2001 narrowed Chevron's domain to agency actions carrying the force of law. King versus Burwell in 2015 narrowed it a little bit further by emphasizing major questions doctrine. The Supreme Court in recent years, and the lower courts as well following their lead, have hewed much more closely to Justice Scalia's original vision in his 1989 Duke Law Journal article by taking an especially robust approach to Chevron Step 1, relying on traditional tools of interpretation to resolve statutory meaning for themselves, rather than moving on to that Step 2 and deferring quite so much and quite so reflexively. When I last checked, and it was fairly recently, the Supreme Court had not actually deferred to an agency interpretation under Chevron since 2017. Um, Meanwhile, although he did not live to participate in Kaiser versus Wilkie, Justice Scalia himself sounded the clarion call on our. That doctrine normally or nominally survives today, but Kaiser pretty clearly defanged it by articulating five separate predicates that have to be satisfied before a court can defer to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations. Um, Again, this is impressionistic rather than empirical, but the lower courts have gotten the message, and deference under our, I think, has declined precipitously as well. I will say briefly that in addition to curbing judicial deference to agency legal interpretations, the Supreme Court has been more aggressive in recent years in applying State Farm and Chenery 1 to require agencies to explain themselves more fully. Um, And my sense is that efforts in the the 1980s and 1990s to expand justiciability limitations have seen their high watermark as well, and the pendulum has begun to swing back more fully uh, to allow frequent, more frequent judicial review of a administrative action. And let's be clear, most executive branch action continues to be agency action, not presidential action. No matter how much the president endeavors to influence and shape agency action through EO 12866 and OIRA review or otherwise, Um, he still relies on agencies to act, and agency action is reviewable under all of these doctrines. So continuing then to Congress, the political scientist Morris Fiorina wrote some decades ago that Congress had largely walked away from its legislative role in favor of emphasizing constituent service, delegating the hard legislative choices to the executive branch, and embracing instead a service model of helping their constituents resolve issues with executive branch agencies. Um, I will never forget a luncheon here in D.C. a few years ago when Michael Barone, serving as a moderator, asking questions of a couple of congressmen, asked one of them to describe the accomplishment of which he was the most proud in his years as a legislator. And the congressman responded by claiming that he had the best constituent service operation in the House of Representatives. Um, I am sure that there are many factors that have combined to lead to the level of congressional fecklessness that we now see today. But I will note that courts and scholars have been telling members of Congress for decades that the world is simply too complicated for them to be expected to handle legislating, so that they're perfectly right to rely instead 
on executive branch experts. If you are told often enough that you are incapable, you start to believe it and find other things to do. No one can force Congress to guard its own powers jealously, but some members of the Supreme Court may be trying at least a little bit by rattling the non-delegation doctrine saber. Now, I'm out of time, so let me just sum up briefly by saying that I really don't think that the biggest problem with our government today is presidential administration. The Supreme Court is reasserting its own prerogatives, and that seems to me to be a healthy thing. I am less sanguine about Congress and the non-delegation doctrine, but I'm confident that the solution cannot be found by rearranging the deck chairs within the executive branch alone or by trying to constrain presidential power without finding something in the other branches to fill the void. Thanks, Kristen. Now, I'm, like you, I'm very fond of Judge Santel as well, but I have to ask, who among us has not found ambiguity in a stop sign from time to time? <laughs> um, that, That's troubling, Adam. <laughs> very troubling. Now, that, that aside, I've, I have a couple of questions of my own before we go to the audience, but maybe we'll give um, Ash and then Katie a chance if they have any, any, any reactions so far. I, I, I should say, I, I do... I did think carefully about whether to begin using the term authoritarianism and discussed it with both philosophers and political scientists and used the term intentionally, A, because it's an accurate umbrella term for all the different kinds of tyranny, dictatorship, whatever. And I I certainly don't think that we are you know, I say we are sliding in that direction. We are moving in that direction. I take that as a pretty um, basic um, statement. I, I don't think there's really much debate about that. I certainly don't mean to be overly hyperbolic about it or, or to insult anybody who's experienced real, real tyranny. Um, but and I agree wholeheartedly that it's not the president's fault. I, who can fault a president for wanting to get things done when they've been elected and Congress isn't coming through and the courts have, have not done their part. Um, it's certainly not just about the president. And it's, of course, the um, agencies also play their role. Um, but to me, it is a problem that perhaps needs a little bit of hyperbole right now that um, we need to take really seriously for the reasons uh, that the first panel brought out, that we have this pendulum that's swinging precipitously from left to right with each new administration. Um, You remember during the Obama years when Obama was setting immigration policy, the right was going crazy and then Trump did the same thing and the left is going crazy and now everybody wants Biden to do something about immigration. <laughs> and I'd really like Congress to do something about immigration. Um, so I, I think the hyperbole is, is somewhat intentional, but certainly not intended to insult anybody's real lived experiences. So um, um, thank you again, Kristen, for, for the really... Um, generous engagement with with our piece. I guess I'll I'll first just briefly on this um, colloquy you and um, Katie had. It's really fascinating because it, um, the the phrase authoritarianism, and I mean, I'll begin by saying, Katie, um, you're discussed with um, political scientists and philosophers as someone who does political theory um, 
seems especially sharp, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> but um, the um, the this is this is very much a post nineteen ninety phenomena, where um, authoritarianism, at least in the language of administrative law, is very much associated with the APA and the response to the perceived excesses of the um, Roosevelt administration. But the emergence of authoritarianism in political science literature is post-1990 is, um, is a response to the kind of failure of the Fukuyama thesis that like liberal democracy would then spread everywhere equally and that we'd have this kind of uniform type of governance. And those, I'm thinking particularly of Levitsky and Ziblatt, those who are sort of engaged in trying to create a more um, rich taxonomy of forms of quasi-authoritarian right. um, um, forms of government that don't, that don't feature highly competitive elections. Um, you know, competitive authoritarianism is the phrase they tend to use, right? So it's, it, 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 it just makes for such, um, such a sort of an in, interesting historical um, and conceptual conversation seeing the different reactions to the term. Um, so on... I, I want to just respond to one particular thing, Kristen. I think it's extremely rich in your piece is that um, the president still isn't involved in the vast day-to-day -day governance. So, like, what's going on there? And that's right. Like, I, th I think that's just totally right. And, I mean, part of, that's part of the reason what we're trying to do here is historicize what is happening here. But forms of governance also create opportunities for intervention. <laughs> and I think about, um, at least for my own training, different traditions of um, to different traditions of liberty in, in political philosophy. And I think in particular about the Republican tradition of, of liberty, where it isn't active interference with your daily life, which is the problem, but rather the possibility of domination, that things are so structured that um, someone can intervene in certain ways to um, interfere with your life goals and plans. Now, obviously, the analogy between humans and institutions uh, is always difficult, but I think um, there's something quite Republican, and I'm not quite as familiar with the literature on the history of the APA as my colleague Noah or Haiti, but there's something quite Republican about that um, tradition of liberty um, that's encased, embodied, expressed in the APA, where reason decision-making um, and the ability to participate, things Kenneth Culp Davis points out are absolutely central to the regime inaugurated um, post-APA, um, do create a, a sense of alarm about what presidential administration has, has um, the world it's created. Not because in every single case we're not having good governance, but rather there are structures and possibilities, apertures through which the president can intervene that we should be worried about. So I guess it's a question of emphasis and how, how, how worried we should be. Um, and I'll, I'll just say that um, you're gonna, you will find, I, I think, uh, like the forthcoming Harvard Law Review forward is very, works in very much this sophisticated like, um, analysis of, of presidential administration as a they, not an it. Um, like academic clickbait there. I'm oh. curious to hear what the article is. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a millennial, so, you know. <laughs> Ash, let me pick up, actually, for the, for the panel with a theme that you just alluded to, and, and I'll maybe one, one more question from me after that. Listening, re reading both the papers and listening to your remarks, thinking about 
the values of good government that you're, you're both sort of calling for a return to. Um, and I, I jotted down, Katie really enumerates these at the end of her paper, focusing on public participation, transparency, deliberate, deliberation, and uniformity, um, all, all good things in government. But then I think back to Federalist 70, for example, or Hamilton focusing on the president for, you know, says, we want energy in the executive, and energy is unity, often secrecy, dispatch. And yes, the president isn't the, the presidency isn't the sum total of administration, but Hamilton puts it front and center. Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with, with Hamilton, many don't, but I wonder if the, the, the values that you're calling for in administration, look, they might be values of good government, they seem to sit uneasily with the framers' ideal of execution. And so how do you resolve the, the tension between those? Katie, since I picked on your paper, maybe uh, you go first. Yeah, it's, fun. it's, it's great that you brought up the Federalists. That's, um, I was, in Kagan's article, she puts efficiency and accountability front and center as the values of the administrative state and doesn't acknowledge any others, in fact. And yet she doesn't provide any citation for it at all. And so, of course, I emailed my favorite historian, Noah Rosenblum, and said, where does she get this from? And um, eventually, yeah, I think it, it, it goes back at least to the Federalist. Um, so, yes, the framers, at least some of the framers, understood that you do need somebody in the government who is um, really getting things done on a day-to-day basis. But by the time we get to the 1930s and we have FDR being pretty darn vigorous, thank you very much, with the first and second New Deals, we start to see some reaction to, wow, we've got a burgeoning bureaucracy. We've got a president who's perhaps a bit too vigorous for our taste. Let's figure out how to balance things out. And, and what balanced that through this almost 20-year debate was transparency, public participation, uniformity of procedures so that the public would actually be able to understand what's going on, and so on, and the other values that are actually written, baked into the pie that is the APA. So I think it's, it's the, the generation of the 1930s and 40s pushing back a bit against the, or rebalancing the founders' vision in light of what our government was actually becoming on the ground 150 years after the founding. Thanks. Ash? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because it just strikes me that um, in, in basically, this is, a, this is kind of a Neil Hamiltonian vision of executive governance. And... Um, it is extremely simpatico. I don't. I don't have the institutional answer, by the way, in terms of how do you balance those two things. It's a. It's. It's a. It's a complicated question of institutional design. And frankly, I think any answer to the question has to contend with. And this is where my law of democracy um, biases play in. The fact that we we have ex, we have an extremely poorly designed system for um, ensuring any form of consistent majority rule, and that and that's due to different contingent features of both the Constitution, but also demographics and partisan clustering, et cetera. So like any, any response to that question um, would require sort of more fundamental reforms to how the political process works, period. Um, I'm thinking of that, you know, there's basically like a, 
within the span of like 20 years, you have two statements of uh, sophisticated statements, one in administrative law and then one in the history of political thought, both coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts in favor of a strong presidency. And I think Kagan in 2001 and Eric Nelson in, um, I forget, 2012 or 13, um, where he basically says, actually, you should look. Um, if you go look at um, the design of the original Constitution and you look at the intellectual arguments um, being made, um, we did want a royalist, um, a royalist um, president. We do want an imperial president. Now, lots of historians have pushed back on Eric's narrative, and I think quite they've, they've, they've challenged it extremely well. But um, it's, it's hard for me not to see this tendency to try and give historical pedigree to an energetic executive as partly a response to failures of governance elsewhere. And this is Kristen's point about Congress, right? Like, you can't tell this story without some consideration of the fact that Congress just doesn't do it. Kristen, do you want to weigh in on this point at all? I mean, how do you square the circle between the, 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 the demands, the APA's demands of slow deliberation, participation, uh, versus the, the Hamiltonian executive? Well, I mean, I suppose I think of it, I always think of the APA as, you know, if you look at the progressive and New Deal eras, Congress had shifted so much power to the executive branch that they needed to find a way to recalibrate. So they enacted the Administrative Procedure Act. And one reason that the Supreme Court has been so willing to go along with a moribund non-delegation doctrine has been because they had this statutory mechanism to utilize to check the president. Um, you know, so, yeah, we want an energetic president. And we have an energetic president. I mean, you know, look, even before Kagan wrote presidential administration, you know, it's, it's since the New Deal era, we have had nothing but energetic, exec, robust executive action. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why I, I roll my eyes a little bit about the use of words like authoritarian or dictatorial or tyrannical is that those were the words that were thrown around with respect to the New Deal. And sure, the APA checked that a little bit, but let's be realistic. We've been throwing words like that around since, you know, early in the 20th century to describe executive administration. And somehow we've managed not to slip down the road to true tyranny. Um, you know, so, you know, to me, it's all about balance. You know, sure, they wanted a robust executive, but they very much didn't want purely a robust executive. They envisioned checks and balances as part of separation of powers. And so, you know, I might prefer that they be constitutional mechanisms rather than statutory ones. But, um, you know, so long as those statutory mechanisms are constitutional, and I think the APA is definitely constitutional, like Katie, I'm a fan of the APA. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that at least serves a useful purpose in that regard. Uh, one last question for me, and then I'll get out of the way. We've referred a few times to Executive Order 12291. I mean, speaking of anniversary years, I guess it's the 40, 40th year of that EO and the modern OIRA framework. And now, in the first year of, of the Biden administration, there are deliberations, that, that it said, about the future of OIRA review and maybe reforms to, if not the current executive order, maybe some supplemental executive orders. 
Katie Ash, if you were called over after this conference down the block to the White House to give them your advice on what to do with OIRA oversight and, and presidential oversight of administration in general, what advice would you give uh, President Biden? Katie? Get rid of it. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I don't actually mean that, but it is, it is remarkable to read some of the, um, the now historic um, analyses of 12291 when it passed that uh, Ash and his co-authors brought out, because the inconsistency of OIRA review with the APA is really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And and so what I'm I'm actually kind of a big fan of um, making OIRA review statutory to work out the conflict um, and to build in more transparency, more fairness in the process, less of an opportunity to um, make it just a roadblock for regulation or deregulation. Um, and and build enforce more of the um, a lot of the things that are in the executive orders are largely ignored. I feel like perhaps that would happen less if it were statutory. So I would actually consider seriously. I don't think OIRA is going anywhere as a realistic matter. I think it does serve some good function to centralize White House review of what's going on out there in the little fiefdoms of the agencies. but the way it's working right now, to my mind, is quite broken. Mm. And uh, Congress getting involved in the conversation might be a very healthy development. Ash, mend it or end it? Um, yeah, I, um, I, I mean, Katie, Katie took the, the, the one fix I would want to make, which is make it um, statutory. I would add, just as a refinement, that re- one requirement would be cost-benefit analysis can only be applied to regulations, to, to statutes that actually require cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early 1980s, when this is passed, even Cass Sunstein, who would then become truly kind of like the St. Paul of cost-benefit analysis, um, he, he made the argument that, in fact, like he, and he was an OLC, right? Cass Sunstein makes the argument, actually, I, we don't think civil rights statutes are compatible with cost-benefit analysis. We think all sorts of statutes are not compatible with it, and we need to have a very constrained and um, um, cautious reading of a cautious application of cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. Today, cost-benefit analysis extends to all sorts of statutes, including ones that we might think have deontological motivations. We might take, look, I, I have no problems with folks saying, well, you know, ultimately regulation is a utilitarian exercise and everything should be that way. Well, if that's the case, then the statute should contain that language. Well, we have uh, some microphones in the room again. So I guess the first question will be in the back and then the next one will be... Do I get to be... defend OIRA? What's that? <laughs> you, defend, oh, you defend OIRA plenty. Uh, <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, we'll start with Mike. Again, see the collected works. I published an essay on OIRA earlier this year. <laughs> we'll start with Mike and then Zach and then David. So this is sort of a kind of multi-part question for, for Katie. Um, so I guess I, I didn't, maybe I missed it, but, but um, I guess the first question is, do you think if, that the APA actually ought, does in fact, let's say the tax, the original meaning, apply to the president? Because it seems to me there's a strong argument for that based on the text. 
despite what the courts have said. And um, I guess sort of the, the question I, I sort of wonder about this authoritarianism point, um, if the president's exercise of the power of the government, if he's not exercising any power that an agency can't exercise, right, it's just a different decision maker making it, the question arises sort of why there's an authoritarianism at work there, right? If it's the government has the same amount of power. Now, I suppose you might say, um, well, it's one person exercising that power versus a whole bunch of people. I'm not sure if that's what the argument is. Um, another sort of argument might be, well, the APA has checks in it. Um, maybe if the APA applied to president, that would help. Or, or maybe, you know, there's checks in it. But when you actually think about the checks, um, and if we're talking about rulemaking, the original APA doesn't have much checks in it <laughs> on rulemaking, right? You know, we can imagine, you know, some, some, some APA invented in 1970 in the D.C. Circuit, but, but the, the, the real one um, doesn't have checks in it. So I'm sort of wondering how, if you could just sort of clarify in terms of these kinds of concerns, the authoritarianism claim. Sure. There's a, um, I'll point you towards yet another article. Please see the collected works on SSRN. Uh, it's called Constraining the Statutory President, uh, building off of Kevin Stack's marvelous um, piece, The Statutory President, which is a must-read in this area. Um, I do think that the APA applies to the president, indeed. Um, and I, I built that out um, historically and textually and normatively in that piece. Um, when the president acts as supersecretary, uh, uh, using authority that Congress has given specifically to another officer, why do I call that authoritarianism? Again, it's it's just you, you know feeding off of the current um, political science literature. Um, the the what makes something what puts something under this umbrella of potential authoritarianism is decision making by a single individual. Um, I, I agree that the original APA's rulemaking provisions were pretty bare bones, but um, notice and comment rulemaking was at, at the time and still, I think, one of the APA's most um, robust um, and important changes. Um, a lot of agencies were doing it already, so I don't want to emphasize the extent to which it was a real shift. But um, the idea of involving the public in decision-making, the idea of, the, it actually says that an agency is supposed to consider the public comments. And I take that very seriously as a real requirement of deliberation and that the agency needs to explain itself. To me, those are very important, um, often abused, but important requirements that are entirely missing when the president issues an order saying, do X, thank you, uh, then we know what the outcome is. The agency's discretion that Congress wanted the agency to have is severely constrained. So it also raises, I think, big balance of power problems. The next question, Zach, and I, the podium's kind of in the way, so if there are any hands up, I'll I keep poking over here. Well, thanks a lot for the interesting presentation. So my question is, I, we've talked about um, 
rise of polarization and the rise of kind of executive unilateralism. But I'm curious if you agree with this, but it strikes me another recent trend is kind of declining governing capacity in our institutions. I think at both the federal and state level, it just feels like governments are less able to shape behavior, both domestically and internationally. And um, there are a lot of factors in that. Some of them are actually, I think some of the examples Katie talks about in the paper are actually, you know, presidents getting power and then using it not to achieve their aims, but instead to disable institutions that their people with a different policy vision might use down the road. And I'm just curious if, if you agree with that analysis, if that should change how we think about presidential administration, because it, it seems like Kagan was envisioning a kind of strong, self-confident federal state. And the, the question is how to get it to be responsive to public interest. But if we're now in an environment of a kind of weakening state, should we think about presidential administration differently? Kristen, I cut you off earlier when you wanted to talk about Elira. Do you want to take this one first? <laughs> you think that they're synonymous with one another? <laughs> I'm just trying to give equal time. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, and I don't have an answer particularly. Um, you know, I will say that um, I, I, I agree with you that there has been a decline in capacity when it, it seems when it comes to um, I think that competence, it's competence or a seeming decline in competence when it comes to governing. And I don't know that that's unique to government, frankly. Um, it seems to me that we have declining competence in a lot of different areas, and that concerns me greatly, and I don't know what the answer is, but it strikes me that the answer is not to be found in administrative law. Ash? Yeah, I, um, that, um, that's a, it's a profoundly depressing question because um, <clears throat> it, to piggyback off of what Kristen said, um, it just sort of shows the, the limits of administrative law as, as a device when thinking about competence, um, sorry, institutional capacity and let's say state capacity. So, you know, I could, I could point, for instance, to major questions doctrine as a place where administrative creativity is constrained um, whenever and the judiciary sort of deems, okay, well, we've, we've turned on the major questions switch. We're going to be careful when interpreting how um, administrative action is happening here. But, you know, responding to problems is, 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 not, just a, is not often just a question of reorientation and reconfiguration. It's sometimes a question of growth and expansion, right? And if the problem is a limitation on state capacity, then the only real vehicle for getting state capacity to respond to, and I think really the pandemic is probably casting the long shadow over this question, right? Um, you know, you need, you, need, you, need a, you need Congress that can legislate. On that account, I will say, though, that Congress did legislate. Um, that Congress did, you know, like we might think it's inadequate or um, not quite as large as we needed. You know, look, that's a part, like we can get into partisan arguments about like, is it too much or not? But, you know, Congress did, did legislate. But we have all sorts of problems that are not on the level of a pandemic. That are, const that are like low-grade problems that pose existential. Really, I mean, like, this is where there is no exaggeration, kind of existential threats. Congress isn't doing much to, to, to respond to those problems. So, you know, like, um, 
I, I don't. I don't think they're. That that question I think illuminates the the limits of this sort of analysis and this sort of project. Katie, I I think that's an excellent point. I've been thinking a lot about the limits of administrative law recently, and and the real need for us to start um, parlaying more with political scientists and those in public administration. And stay tuned for a wonderful series that Noah is. Um, organizing through the Association of, Administ- of American Law Schools Ad Law section that will be open to the public, I believe, in which we'll, we'll try to team up um, administrative law scholars with public administration and political science scholars to get that conversation going. I, I, do, I, I do think there was a recent study, maybe somebody else remembers who did it, um, analyzing the output from Congress and pointing out that, no, Congress doesn't pass a whole lot of bills, but when they pass one, boy, they're big whoppers, and there's a lot in them. Um, so there's actually a lot more coming out of Congress than we might think. And having started my career in state and local government, I think state and local government is a lot more vibrant than we might think these days. And perhaps one of the things we in administrative law need to start thinking more about in relation to what we're doing is preemption and federalism um, and the extent to which we're overly focused on federal control at the expense of the laboratories of democracy in the states, which could be part of the answer to what's going on at the federal level. I think the last question, uh, and then after that, if Lev or Noah want to offer any concluding thoughts or or corrections, uh, I'll give them a chance too. But the last question will be David Wagner. Uh, we'll just wait for the, the microphone. Yeah. Uh, perhaps Noel will want to get on this too, although it may be a question that would have been better posed to the, the, one of the panels that led to that special issue of the law review. But anyway, the APA that we have isn't itself the first draft, right? There was an earlier version, um, which Congress then left aside for about six years, during which stuff happened. Wow. The stuff that happened was, of course, the war. And from the 20s, we have the saying that war is the health of the state, but in particular, war is the health of the executive in the state. And I don't think, I think it's <clears throat> not a coincidence that in the, during the early 40s, we have the, the sluice gates just open in the Supreme Court towards delegation, right? That's when we have the whole pile of cases, Yakis, VOS, NBC, all those that my students and I used to call a great pile of Yakis. Um, uh, and so the Congress comes to the APA again, this time to do it in 46, by which time everybody's consciousness is changed in favor of a more powerful executive because of the war. And I just wonder how the panel thinks that fact in. I'll note in, in that symposium essay, uh, there's a couple, uh, the symposium is a couple of essays, one by Jeremy Rabkin on the subject and the other by, by Katie. So Katie, why don't you start? Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, little period of history, I think, and I, I'll defer to the resident historians more on this. But um, the traditional line is administrative reform took a back seat during the war. Congress wasn't doing anything because they were busy with the war. It turns out that's not true. There was a lot going on during the war. The ABA was working gangbusters on revising um, the act during the war. 
And um, there was a lot of interaction with Congress that I haven't had a chance to suss out yet. Um, but, and, and certainly I think you're right that people started to be a bit more comfortable with a powerful executive. But don't forget also what was happening during the war. There were shortages. There was, you know, a, a huge mess that people were associating with the federal bureaucracy. Um, and... Um, and so we might be a little bit more comfortable with a powerful president, but I don't think that Americans were getting more comfortable with a powerful bureaucracy at the time. So um, I think that actually part of what happened was that liberals in Congress um, started to become a bit more comfortable with the idea of controlling agencies, especially as they saw the Roosevelt years winding down and anticipating, oh, at some point, we're going to have a Republican president again who might want to undo the New Deal. So I think it's both that the right was, sh- there's a collective shifting to the middle and, um, and some brilliant work out of the ABA to, to find a common ground. That, and, and then a Truman administration that just wasn't going to fight about it. Ash? Yeah, so um, I think both, both my colleagues, Lev and Noah, can speak to this in detail, but I, I just want to set them up by saying it's sort of like a common dictum in like historical political science that war made states. The, 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 the interest, an elaboration of that question was, well, how? And one thing we've seen today is an analogy between wars and responses to pandemics um, and mobilization to the pandemic. I think Lev, can, who's done really important work trying to show that banking and finance is actually a form of public law and administration can speak to the ways in which legislative creativity there has tried to respond to that. And Noah, of course, is a, is, 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 is a master of the 20th century, so I'll leave it to him maybe to talk before, about the state. Maybe before we give Kristen the last word, maybe yeah. this is a natural yeah. point to let Lev yeah. or, or Noah jump in right. if they have anything to no, not, not Lev? Do it. <laughs> I just, I can't resist because the historical question is so great. And, and one of the, there's a sort of another puzzle we might ask, which is why was World War II so different from World War I, right? Because many of the folks associated with the build out of administrative capacities during World War II are drawing, on, they're, they're either in the government during World War I, or at least their teachers are. And, and so there are two kind of interesting twists here, right? And the first is that coming out of World War I, there's an explicit attempt to demobilize. So you think about something like the Overman Act, which had given Wilson the power to reorganize the government during World War I and concentrate executive concentrate administrative capacities in the executive, but it's conditional. And after the war, it gets dismantled. So until recently, we all would have said, oh yeah, the sort of deposit is conceptual, not administrative. But there's a new book that's about to come out by Jesse Tarber called When Good Government Meant Big Government, where he, I think, pretty conclusively shows that that established story is incorrect. And that even as you get a kind of demobilization and, and aspects of a juridical return to a pre-World War I moment, you actually have continuous institutional buildup. So that Harding, of all people, who I would never have thought of as like a good government champion, is really responsible for consolidating some institutions of executive good governance. Kind of crazy. And there's an additional tweak here, and this draws on some work I've been doing with Andrea Katz, who's an amazing scholar at Washington University in St. Louis, that... that um, when Republicans come back into power after World War I, they're the party of big administrative government because it's those vile Southern Democrats like Woodrow Wilson who have brought back the spoil system and installed all of these terrible people just to hand out cash using the government as a way to do it. So Taft, even though he's now at the Supreme Court, he's still part of that entire apparatus 
and they've got a vision of, 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 of good administrative governance that they're building out. So, okay, what does this mean for World War II, right? From an institutional perspective, you actually do, as Ash was saying, have this continuous buildup. The, the puzzle, and then, then I'll, I'll pass this off, is that you know, World War, the, the, the World War II you know, ends, but Americans are committed to more of a wartime footing. What is that, or more comfortable with executive concentration as part of the war? What does that mean for after the war? And I think here again, the historical puzzle is, when does the war really end from an administrative perspective? Because of course, government expenses, even though they come down from the peak of 44, they still remain higher than they've ever been at any point in American history before World War II. And so when the government makes its argument in Youngstown Steel that they remain on emergency wartime footing, right, that's not a crazy argument. In fact, the Senate believes it. And it's, it's sort of a shock when the Supreme Court turns away from it. So, so one answer to your question of, wait, like, you know, isn't this just a story of Americans getting comfortable with war? And then what do we do when it ends is to say, actually, it never ended. And in some sense, the administrative state of today is maybe best conceptualized as a continuation of a wartime administrative state that we have been in ever since World War I. Okay, that's a provocative historical statement, but, but it's a, it, it would be a very different way of thinking about what the government is that we find ourselves in now. Thank you. Kristen, you'll get the last word. So the only last word I'm going to say is thank you very much for putting this conference together because, and I think this is an important point, given particularly this morning's panel with respect to polarization, but also our own, that it gives us an opportunity to talk about these really important issues in a manner where we can disagree without being disagreeable. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Kristen. I'm happy to say that we managed to get through this whole panel without the Marshall McLuhan moment where Elena Kagan actually walks in and says, <laughs> people know nothing of my work. So please join me in thanking the speakers. Thank you.